Hello, and welcome to the Paperclip podcast. I'm Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation, and in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. Hello, and welcome to the new Paperclip podcast with me, Mehir Sharma of the Observer Research Foundation. And in this podcast, we are going to take a look together at the stories that matter to India and the world. As always, we take a step back from the headlines in your morning paper and explain what really lies behind them, using cutting-edge research and commentary globally, including from my ORF colleagues. Over the past four episodes of Paperclip, we have looked at the challenges and opportunities thrown up for India following the growth of tensions on its northern border with the People's Republic of China. So far, the pandemic that we are all suffering through has only been a tangential presence in our discussions. But I think today we can start to take a closer look at what the pandemic has taught us, not just about India, but about democratic societies in general. The question we will be asking today is, has the pandemic revealed ways in which democracies are more vulnerable to crisis events of this sort? If so, which democracies are more vulnerable? And what has been the effect on how voters think about leadership and how politicians and democracies conduct politics. Here in India, in some ways, politics has gone on as usual. State governments have been threatened by defection, survived or not, depending on how well the game has been played. Madhya Pradesh saw a government leave office in the early days of the lockdown. Rajasthan saw one survive. Identity politics of various sorts has also continued as usual. Yet all this can happen perhaps because, after the first few weeks... The pandemic itself has almost vanished as a subject of political discussion. And by that I mean how well or how badly the union government or various state governments have reacted to the pandemic is not at the top of the list in terms of politics right now. This is interesting because it's not really how things have panned out elsewhere in the world. And we will get back to what might make India different a little later. First, however... Let's take a look at three big theories that have gotten a lot of attention about success or otherwise in dealing with the pandemic. First, there is the theory that expertise is back. What does this mean? Well, writing in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, Gideon Rachman argued that the pandemic will bring to an end the populist moment. The populist moment essentially being the period in international political experience and history dating from, well, around 2014, in which strong leaders with populist political instincts began to dominate politics across the world. Populists can be thought about as strong men who define themselves against some sort of elite and claim to represent the people in their entirety. They don't have to be right-wingers. They can come from both the right and the left politically. President Donald Trump may be from the political right, for example, but Mexico's president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, generally called AMLO, is from the left. The thing is, according to Rachman at least, populists hate to be unpopular. That is why, he says, they have proved so bad at handling COVID-19, a crisis that brings nothing but grim news, deaths, economic destruction and curtailed freedoms. There may be other reasons. The the philosopher Vittorio Bufacci has argued that the reason is that populists typically have no place in their retinues, courts or cabinets for intellectuals or experts because such leaders tend to distrust them 
as being inauthentic or disloyal. That's why economists or doctors and the like are not very popular among populist leaders. But he says, Fauci argues, that our necessary reliance on high-skilled experts during the current crisis reveals the idiocy of populism's anti-intellectualism. Possibly, but the question remains whether voters will see it that way. The second theory is that women leaders do well. And this one certainly seems to have some prominent examples driving it. Uh, South Korea, New Zealand, Taiwan and Germany, all with women leaders, are those most often cited. Interestingly, this one already has some data work that tentatively backing, backs it up. Uh, Supriya Gariki Patti from the University of Liverpool and Uma Kambampatti from the University of Reading found that if you were in one of the 174 countries that are male-led, as opposed to one of the 19 countries, only 19 countries, that are female-led, you are twice as likely to die of the virus. So just think about that for a moment. If your country's leader is a man, then you seem to be twice as likely to die of the virus as if your country's leader is a woman. Now, they haven't done this through a simple comparison the researchers have controlled for various population characteristics, um, and the paper hasn't yet passed through peer review, but, it, but there is some solid research there. Why do you think that is? Well, the author suggests that this might be partly because women leaders are more risk-averse than their male counterparts. So they are more likely, for example, to shut down their economies earlier and more stringently. Finally, let's look at the theory from the writer Pankaj Mishra in the London Review of Books. And Mishra has said that democracies within the Anglo-American tradition in particular, of which I suppose India is also part, have been shown up compared to strong or even authoritarian states like the People's Republic of China. And this is what Mishra says in his own words. COVID-19 has exposed the world's greatest democracies as victims of prolonged self-harm. It has also demonstrated that countries with strong state capacity have been far more successful at stemming the virus's spread and look better equipped to cope with the social and economic fallout. Democracy, he adds, does not guarantee good government, even in its original heartlands. So, in terms of determining a link between political orientation and dealing with the pandemic, we are spoiled for choice. Is it that democracies will lose out to big state authoritarians or that female leaders will preserve lives where male leaders will risk them or that expertise has been revealed to be the central task of leadership and that voters agree? I think that what we have here is what is called an overdetermined system. In other words, there is one outcome, how effectively politicians may have responded to the pandemic, and there are in fact multiple effective causes. Indeed, even among the world's populists, they have responded very differently. According to the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, which tracks how populists respond to this and other crises, there have been multiple different approaches. Some, like Donald Trump or AMLO in Mexico or Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, have denied the seriousness of the pandemic altogether. But that's not, in fact, the general rule. According to the Tony Blair Institute, 12 of the 17 populist leaders they track on a regular basis have instead taken the virus very seriously. 
Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, in fact, has taken it so seriously that he even threatens to shoot curfew violators. The Institute does argue, however, that what it calls cultural populists, who come to power by stoking cultural divides, have had broadly illiberal and in some cases anti-democratic responses as part of their reaction to the pandemic. And these illiberal or anti-democratic responses can take many forms. They might have doubled down on identity politics, for example, used it as an opportunity to crack down on dissidents or on minorities, or seen it as merely an opportunity or an excuse to amass further power. Similarly, when it comes to democracies as a whole, the response has been much more diverse than the proponents of the democracies are struggling claim, like Pankaj Mishra, can actually make. Taiwan is definitely a democracy, for example, and it has emerged as a poster child for dealing with this pandemic. Australia and New Zealand are democracies in the Anglo-American style that Mishra pans, in fact, and they have done well. So, now that we understand that there appears to be no general rule, it is worth thinking about where India fits into this fairly complex narrative. It is always useful to remember, especially for those of us in India, that while India is the world's largest democracy and therefore its most complex, it is not alone. The challenges its democracy and its governance faces are not unique, and there is much to learn from what is happening elsewhere, especially in times of crisis that we all share. I have argued in a Bloomberg column that, judging by the Indian experience, if a leader takes a strong stand in a crisis early on, as Narendra Modi did in India by imposing the national lockdown early and very hard, then he essentially inoculates himself against the political fallout of the virus. In other words, we don't talk about handling the virus as a political issue today because the early lockdown means that it is no longer in anybody's interest to do so. Why? Well, the opposition cannot effectively criticize the government because the government can argue it took the virus seriously and locked down early. Meanwhile, the government cannot take credit for success because success has not been achieved and virus cases are still growing very fast. And that is the reason why, at least at the moment, we are not discussing the pandemic as much as some other democracies might be. And that's one mystery cleared up. Here on Paperclip, we go behind the stories in the news and explain why they are the way they are. This has been the Paperclip Podcast, and I'm Mihir Sharma. Thanks for listening.